Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. As you know, this show is about culture warriors, those who work in front of the camera, behind the scenes, at the other end of a sharp pen, or in the trenches of politics. And I feel particularly sorry for that last category. Canberra is the messiest location in the culture wars. It takes the sheer weight of a million free-thinking voices to suffocate the rise of socialism and its totalitarian, fear-driven soldiers who just want the big state to hug them a little bit tighter. Now, even if this means living in a prison, well, I refuse to pick up a shovel and uh, go digging in the gulag, as does my next guest. He works tirelessly to keep the press free and democracy alive. He is ADH commentator and spectator writer, Chairman Morris Newman. Good afternoon. How are you, Alexandra? I am great. <laughs> and it's wonderful to have the ADH chairman on our show here. You have been uh, involved in a long and illustrious career, serving as the chairperson for the ABC, the chair of the board of the Australian Stock Exchange, Chancellor of the Macquarie University, and of course, you're the chairman here. And actually, when I went to look at your career, there were so many positions, it was like five pages long. So I just I left that behind. But your most important role, according to Wikipedia, the shrine of all knowledge, is your role as a conspiracy theorist in Australian media. Now, is this label uh, symptomatic of this world we now live in? <laughs> I think it probably is. I think that uh, when, you when you join the obvious dots and you come to a conclusion people don't like, then they say you're a conspiracy theorist. Yes, well, to label somebody with a career like yours as a conspiracy theorist, as an official record, really is showing us that the media landscape in Australia is broken. Now, Morris, I wanted to ask you, have you noticed that the media has changed in recent decades? Is this the same media that you started with when you were working here? No, I think there's no doubt it's moved increasingly towards the left, much more for bigger government, much more accepting of the the notions that would come out of uh, neo-Marxism without question, really. And I'm not surprised by that because what we're seeing, I think, is the outcome of universities and media schools which are indoctrinating students along these lines not to be questioning of the other side, not to be balanced, but to pursue a narrative, which they do. And so what you're seeing in print in legacy media and in social media is really the result of, I suppose, right from childhood these days through the universities, media school, whatever. And that is the output that uh, you should expect from that. Well, reading history books set in the pre-war years, I'm starting to get the uh, dare we say it vibe off of our press that we are in a similar position. It's a weird mix of hysteria, ignorance, naivety, panic and political absolution that is gold-plated by a strong desire to increase sensorial legislation. Now, is the state of our press a result of a political shift toward the left and left-wing philosophy, or is the press dragging politics to the left? Well, without uh, wanting to be a conspiracy theorist, it does seem to me there's a compounding effect of uh, where, what, it, where, what is chicken and what is egg, I'm not sure. But certainly what we're seeing is a move to the left. I think that's unequivocal. Uh, that, uh, mo and, and I understand too that 
There are penalties that if you don't toe the line, uh, if you're employed by certain media outlets, you may not uh, be promoted or at worst you may be let go. So I get all that and I understand it's all right for someone of my age and my position to be able to go out and say things that other people are not able to and I think that we are in a position at all that uh, somebody can say something that uh, you're not allowed to say. I mean, this is uh, Orwellian uh, of the first degree. But that's the state that we're now in. I think it's totally regrettable. I think for our, or certainly for my children and grandchildren, it is a world that I would rather not have bequeathed to them, but that's where we are at the moment. And thanks to people like you and ADH and uh, our side of the philosophical spectrum, we are starting to get some, uh, some traction, I think, in pushing back. Well, forgive me, but when I was growing up, the ABC was a little dry, but at least you took it seriously. Now it seems to be this subject of ridicule. I mean, if you open the ABC, you do not expect it to be impartial. You don't really trust the facts that are on it. And it seems to be mostly politically driven. That is not the ABC that people pay for as part of our charter. It's supposed to be uh, an ABC that you can respect. Is this a, a problem? Like, I mean, people are saying we should defund the ABC. Well, would it do better off if it had to compete on merit like everything else? Well, it should compete on merit. It should be a subscription service. It shouldn't uh, eat up $1.1 million worth of uh, taxpayers' funds. And more importantly, uh, spending increasing amounts of money on legal costs, which effectively are vanity exercises in order to prove that the ABC never makes a mistake. I mean, in the case I think came out of Senate estimates yesterday with regard to the Heston Russell case, the ABC may be parting, or we as taxpayers uh, through the ABC may, may be parting with something like $3.2 million, which is on top of about the million dollars that they paid for uh, Christian Porter. There was another two or 300,000, I think it was, for Andrew Lamming. And the list goes on and on and on. There's probably something to come out of the uh, the Lerman, uh, 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 Brittany Higgins thing. I mean, it, and as I say, they push back. Uh, in the case of Heston Russell, I think it was acknowledged at the very beginning of the trial that they didn't have a case and they were wanting initially to withdraw but pursued it. And now they're talking about some sort of an appeal. But I mean, this is, as I say, it is all about vanity. It's about not giving ground and admitting the fact that you were pursuing a vendetta or, and, uh, you know, you could call that a conspiracy if you like, but that's the way they go. You're very much attached to your label as conspiracy theorist, but if you want real news, you come to places like ADH or The Spectator. But as a culture, what troubles me is that we seem to be struggling with the concept of free speech. Even the Liberal Party doesn't seem to truly value freedom of speech as a mechanism to keep society functioning. What do you feel when you look at parties like the Liberals when they're trying to argue against this very important misinformation, disinformation bill that's coming? Do you think that we need to have a conversation with politicians and get them to understand the value of free speech? Because at the moment, they come up with policies that are dangerous. They oppose them if Labor has them because they, they oppose Labor, but they don't embrace freedom of speech as such a part of our Western culture and what makes Australia great and what makes the free press great. And it's a fundamental value. And the concern I have is that the misinformation, disinformation bill would have 
government ministers, government departments, in fact, anything from government essentially exempted from penalty. Whereas even if you don't get fined or, or, or there's no penalty attaching to something that you have said which, which offends, remember this is qualitative, uh, that it offends somebody who is the, the thought police, the very fact that you're going to be pulled up, you're going to have to be uh, appearing at a certain time which may be quite inconvenient to you, will be enough to deter a lot of people and a lot of, of thought and, and expression which should be uh, put to the, the media more generally and absorbed by the public. What we're finding increasingly, Alexandra, is that the people, the intelligentsia, the elite, the people who are in charge of this agenda do not believe you, I or others have the intelligence or judgment to be able to decide for ourselves what is best. And you're beginning to see that as a consequence in the aftermath of the referendum, that uh, we have to have days where we have grieving uh, because we obviously got it wrong. We were not sufficiently well-educated. We didn't understand. We didn't have the capacity to think through how important this was. And we voted no, 62% of us even. And uh, we got it so horribly wrong. And that's, we can't be allowed to do that. That's what, that is the danger of democracy, that people actually can come to conclusions themselves. Excuse me, and even if those conclusions are correct, uh, we're not allowed for them to be put out there. And we saw that, I mean, uh, I could go chapter and verse, we had through COVID and all sorts of other examples where the intelligentsia, the elite, uh, our betters, came to conclusions which have subsequently been proven to be wrong. There have been no consequences for that, no accountability, but still they pursue this and it is, it is absolutely Orwellian. It actually reminds me of uh, a renewed thought that I've seen coming up. It, it happened uh, in the last couple of months, but it's, it's an old idea from back last century where people think that you should have to be highly educated to have the right to vote. You should have to pass civics to have the right to vote because you're not smart enough, according to those in power, to know how to vote correctly. That is a fundamental misreading of the democratic system. The idea is that you have people with all the experiences voting and as a uniting front, they tend to make the best choices for society as a whole. If only the university class vote, well then you end up with Canberra, with Canberra voting completely out of step with the rest of the country. And that is something that worries me that this idea of you have to be smart enough to vote, that is a specific type of elitism that I don't think belongs in Australia. Have you noticed that coming up lately? Absolutely. And you have to be smart enough to vote the right way. And that's the, that's the real issue. You may, if you exercise a vote, vote the wrong way. And that's what we got in the referendum. 62% of us voted the wrong way. Uh, it is, it is uh, extremely concerning uh, for people of your age and, and my grandchildren's age looking down the road because we're on the verge of the Ministry of Truth that uh, you cannot be left alone to form your own conclusions because we know what is better. We know what is right and uh, you're not well educated enough or you haven't been to the right schools or whatever to be able to make those decisions. But uh, in reality, what we know is that the public, the ordinary person collectively is smarter than those people who lead it.
That is so well said, and you've perfectly described the big state there that thinks it knows best for us. And big states never know best. That's why they end up starving their people. But one of our favourite fear-mongering topics that hauls in the most profit for newspapers, politicians and their mates in the mining and scientific research area is that of climate change. You have written an excellent article for The Spectator magazine last week called Climate of Fear, in which you say that soon we won't even be able to talk about the weather. Now, it's odd, isn't it? Because talking about the weather is a very British thing. It's meant to be that one safe topic that you can fall back into when you don't want to really offend people, you don't know somebody. Now, if you say it's a hot day, you might be asked to hand over your life savings into the nearest green group to save the planet. Now, Morris, is this an ideological movement playing at politics or an environmental movement? Well, I think it's all of the above. It's an environmental movement which has been captured or which captured politics more likely, uh, and that's what we're de dealing with. And uh, what concerns me is that clearly this is something which is of great benefit to China because they pay no attention to this. Xi Jinping clearly is a climate change denier because uh, he's building two coal-fired power stations a week, he's increasing his coal production by 300 million tonnes a year, and they've now become the largest oil refiners in the world. So if everything we're being told uh, is correct, he's clearly uh, out of step. And uh, what we are doing is importing more wind turbines and more solar panels from China. We'll get more and more EVs if Mr Bowen has his way. And of course, uh, it makes us increasingly dependent on the Chinese supply chain. And ultimately, you become a colony of China. Well, I would like to ask you about your thoughts on this. We keep being told that the political class are the smartest class, okay? They think that they are definitely above the rest of us as far as intelligence. So, why are the Pacific Islands who take out the UN officials, they wander into the tide line and pretend that they're all sinking, they grab these great photo shoots for Time magazine, they ask for, you know, billions of dollars from the Western world because obviously we're all evil climate people. But then they wander around and go and sell their raw materials and their fossil fuels and their deep sea minerals under the table to China, the world's largest emitter, after they've racked the prices up by pretending climate change is a thing. I don't know, call me a cynic, it seems like we are being ripped off for a commercial uh, conversation that's going on with China. I don't know that we're being ripped off. I think we are our own worst enemies. The fact that these people put the these propositions out there. I mean, we're being told about how the Pacific Islands are all sinking and that there'll be refuge, climate refugees that we'll have to take in. When we know from the University of Auckland uh, that something like 80% of all Pacific Islands are either stable or increasing in, in uh, area. So they aren't sinking, they are not in danger, but it's a wonderful opportunity from their point of view to extract more and more money from gullible people like us, and no one will call it out. And as you say, the Chinese naturally, uh, for their own advantage, are playing this up for all of their worth at the United Nations and elsewhere. And so regardless of the science, this becomes the uh, accepted wisdom. Well, where are the United Nations, where are the Greens, where is Extinction Rebellion, and where is Just Stop Oil? When it comes to China, 
covering its little atoll reefs in cement and turning them into missile bases and ports for their giant warships. I mean, I thought that the turtles were endangered and that coral was endangered and the world was ending and that the islands are sinking and yet they're creating these bases all the way through the South China Sea. And I haven't heard a peep out of Greta Thunberg, have you? No. And nor you will, because it's a developing country and they have to be given certain latitudes. So they may have more billionaires than anyone, any other country in the world. They may have the largest standing army. They may have been to, to Mars and to the moon and all of these things, but they're still developing. And so we have to cut them a bit of slack, which allows them to do all the sorts of things that you've just described. There's actually a very funny long story about their Mars rover and what they decided to call it in a kind of <laughs> conquesty uh, way, but that is a story for another time. Now, sometimes I wonder if this is nothing more than lazy clickbait as far as the press goes when it comes to climate change and all these things and global boiling. I mean, Morris, do you think that the press at large, the mainstream media, would do a complete 180 if climate scepticism suddenly became popular? Oh, I think so. I think they're cowered into submission. They are repeating essentially the doctrine that they've been told to repeat. Uh, I know this personally from my time at the ABC when I asked them to be more, more questioning, more curious, for which uh, the roof literally fell in. People stormed out of my speech at the ABC, 200 of the most senior people there. Uh, and again, that was because I was saying something that they did not want to hear and certainly didn't want any of our audiences, whether they be TV or radio, to hear. And that's essentially where we are today. So it's not really a matter of whether you believe in climate change or not. You've been told that you must. Uh, the science might be against whatever it is you're being told, but we're not interested in science anymore. It's not about the science. It's about the politics. It's about the redistribution of wealth from the, from the rich to the poor. Oh, Morris, you should have got up on the nearest roof of the car and done a Winston Churchill and started <laughs> waving your notes around and giving a sermon from there. That would have uh, got you some attention in the that press. Would. Now, you wrote, and I quote in The Spectator, the current high priests driving the doctrine reside within the United Nations and the World Economic Forum. With major input from Beijing, they are propagating the great reset of capitalism, which promises bigger, ever more controlling governments to ensure better and fairer outcomes, end quote. I don't know, it sounds a bit like Chalmers reimagining capitalism to be more fair, if you ask me. But there are a lot of things that don't make sense about the climate change doctrine. One of them is would be its love affair with communism. Now, communism nations are the biggest polluters on the face of the planet, bar none. So why do environmental groups want us to ditch capitalism, which protects the environment, in favour of these planet-murdering regimes? Because they're not interested in the environment. It's about politics. It's about power and control. And uh, until such times as people in Canberra and other Western capitals understand this, uh, they will have their way. And of course, the more we move towards crippling our own economies, uh, in a relative sense, it makes countries like China stronger and more powerful. And uh, it has nothing to do with fairness. I mean, I suppose you could argue that uh, in some exalted position, uh, I will do better under that regime than you. Therefore, that's fair as far as I'm concerned. But 
When it comes to genuine equity and equality, it has nothing whatever to do with it. As I said, you have more billionaires in China than anywhere else in, in the world, any other country in the world, uh, which doesn't strike me as being equitable uh, or the sort of equity which they constantly are preaching. So it, we shouldn't uh, take account of what they say. We should look behind what they say and what the intent is. And the intent is what the World Economic Forum and the United Nations are on about, the redistribution of wealth from the rich to the poor. But surely that's the job of the ABC to take these obvious facts and it takes no time at all to, to Google the facts about uh, China and know that more, I think it's more than 60% of the water isn't fit for human contact, let alone consumption. You can take these environmental figures. Why aren't they the Greens and Labor being put on the stand and being asked these questions about the horrors of communism as far as environmentalism goes? Because I haven't seen an ABC journalist sit any politician down and put them through their paces on facts. Isn't that what we pay them for? Well, I think you know, I think we have enough evidence now and it goes on and on and on most recently with regard to the, uh, the Hamas uh, uh, atrocities in, in Israel to know where the ABC sits. I don't think there can be any doubt about that. And we heard uh, somebody saying the other day that we're still committing genocide when it comes to Aboriginal people. I mean, this is sheer nonsense. It's never called out, it's never apologised for, but it's put across their various uh, media as if it is fact. Uh, no one corrects it, it just becomes established as being the way things are. And so, as I say, we should not be looking to the environmental, uh, the, 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 the doctrines that are being put out about climate change as having anything to do with science. It's all about Redistribution is about power, bigger government and putting people who do know better in charge and able to tell you what you can do and what you can't do. Well, further to your article point here, would it be uh, wrong of us to uh, point out that environmentalism seems to be the latest ism being used to sell the notion of collectivism? Because let's face it, Morris, we're not going to have a, a working class of millennials and Zoomers and Jed Z motivated by a, a, a distinction in work. They need something else to rally around. And this idea of apocalyptic fear seems to be what they've gone with in this generation. Well, I think that's right, because they're not prepared to look around and see where these doctrines lead them. If they looked at Venezuela, if they look at China, if they look at the old Soviet Union, I mean, it goes on and on and on. Of course, what we are told then is, oh, well, they didn't do it properly. I mean, China is now starting to reap the whirlwind of Xi Jinping uh, from 2013 on and his interventions, the government becoming stronger, his his uh, taking over, the, he's stronger today than was Mao Zedong. So the outcome of uh, the, the, the ultimate social and economic consequences of those policies take a long time to come through, but they come through as surely as the sun rises in the morning. Unfortunately, that's all we've got time for here today. Thank you for joining us on Marshall Live. Thank you very much for having me. Our second guest today is fellow ADH TV host and creator of the wildly popular church and state conferences, Dave Peller. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Ellie. You may be, be, be 
you may be being very generous with uh, your estimates of my popularity. I don't think so, Dave. And look, I want to talk uh, to you about a very serious topic besieging Australian politics in recent weeks. But before we get into that, your magnificent church and state conferences were running during the Voice to Parliament campaign. Now, during this time, you had the opportunity to work with Warren Mundine and Senator Jacinta Price. Tell us, Dave, were you shocked at the way these Indigenous conservatives were treated during the voice to parliament by the activists who claimed, obviously falsely, to be arguing from the side of kindness? Um, shocked, I, I hope so. We should always be, be shocked at e extreme hate and uh, vilification of people based on their skin colour, um, but not surprised. Uh, this is fairly old hat. I've been working with uh, Jacinta and Warren for many years and have worked together. Um, on various platforms. Um, I've produced and hosted uh, a show with Warren a, a couple of years ago called Truth Telling. Um, and, you know, there was a, a lineup of right thinking Indigenous Australians uh, who frequently told their accounts of being given all kinds of racial epithets by people who believe it's okay if their own skin colour is black. And so this double standard um, is, is um, shocking. Um, but not surprising. The, it seems to be an outplaying of the conflict theory, which is uh, instead of setting capitalists against workers, it's setting minorities against majorities. And so if anybody's in any kind of uh, majority demographic, um, they're necessarily evil and immoral uh, and have all kind of character flaws. But those same uh, behaviours which are being criticised are completely licensed and uh, excused in anybody belonging to a minority group. And so uh, it's okay if you're leftist and black to call somebody else um, horribly racist names and completely dismiss and uh, cancel their arguments and sincerity uh, based on the fact that they disagree with you and, and have... Uh, another skin colour. So, you know, all the names like Uncle Tom's and In It For The Money, um, you know, they, they, they were fast and furious. And, um, you know, in the aftermath of the election, we didn't see any kind of honest self-reflection, uh, which is consistent with the way they conducted the campaign. Well, I think it might actually be a little bit worse than having minorities pitted against the majority. The majority of quiet Australians is a voting bloc which the left and the Marxists can't get anywhere with. But if they manage to hack that majority down into groups of ideological ideas in conflict with each other, so women and Indigenous activists and all sorts of other ideas, well, then that makes it easier for activists on the left to chip away at Australians because we're no longer a united front. So I think that might actually be even worse than what we think. Now, we talk a lot about apologies to Indigenous people in this country. Do you think, given what you've seen and, and how it has affected people like Warren and Jacinta, that the Yes campaign, and particularly the Prime Minister, should apologise for what happened and, and what he brought upon the Australian people, and especially also for the behaviour of the ABC, which we pay our tax money for, not so that Indigenous people can be harassed and treated that way? Are they owed an apology? Uh, they absolutely are, and it, it shouldn't take a uh, right of centre uh, observer to to see that. Um, it, there was nothing short of hubris involved in the way 
Anthony Albanese conducted the campaign. It was uh, about um, political capital for him and not about conviction. He, he washes it as conviction, but it was just stubbornness. And they may look the same, but they're motivated very differently. If he was a conviction politician, he would have sought to build consensus before going to a referendum. But again, we have this conflict theory, this Marxist ideology, which says you have to do whatever a particular protected minority tells you to do. And so... On one hand, you had uh, blacktivists complaining that 97% of the population would dare to presume to tell 3% of the population how to live, when in actual fact what they were seeking to do was impose the will of a portion of 3% of the population on 100% of the population. And we know that the way democracy works is that 100% of the people get a say on the life of everybody in the nation. That's just the way it's always worked. It's never been a, a tyranny of racial minority, but it's always been uh, one vote, one value, um, first uh, majority rules kind of democracy. So for them to uh, not conduct the campaign in a way that was um, bipartisan and uh, seeking consensus so that something might succeed, and instead to try and ram down a minority uh, opinion, um, that was abusive uh, and it was destructive to the nation and to the fabric of democracy and debate. And uh, the Prime Minister is certainly no longer fit for purpose. He is not fit for the job. He should resign uh, because uh, if not, the nation should throw him out on his butt. Yes, and thank goodness he was told no. And as we all know, Dave, no means no. And uh, so hopefully the Prime Minister will reflect on that eventually. But Dave, a world war was fought last century. At the end of this terrible period, the Western world said never again to Germany's attempt to wipe the Jewish people out of existence. And while, yes, it was the Nazi Party specifically, a majority of Germans aided, abetted and supported the Nazi Party throughout the war years. They continued to harbour hatred for the Jewish people long after peace was reached. It was due to wider public support that some of the worst crimes against humanity were committed. There were plenty of Islamic regimes making bedfellows with Germany at this time because they shared their desire to wipe out the Jews. It had nothing to do with so-called colonialism mm -hmm. or settlement. It was based on a deep hatred for a different religion. Now, this hatred is taught to Palestinian children in preschool with the same devotion as the ISIS brides raise their kids to murder infidels. Now, the adults that come from these propaganda regimes are not people that can be negotiated with in any kind of a Western sense. Now, for nearly 100 years after the Second World War, the West was able to move forward in peace, offering shelter and support to the Jewish people. We, of course, you know, as a civilization, still harbored people who were Holocaust deniers and anti-Semites, but they were, they were too ashamed and embarrassed to come out and take their hatred to the streets. The majority of anti-Semitism, Dave, comes from the left. Members of the Labour Party and Greens here in the Western nations for the UK, Australia, Canada, they've been parroting the same genocidal call as Hamas. Now, these separatist Marxists use anti-colonial, anti-capitalist and anti-settlement narratives to further their domestic political ambitions. They are disgusting human beings. But Dave, my question is, anti-Semitism is not confined to the left. Tell us what you have seen and heard among Christian conservatives that has left you very concerned about this topic. 
Well, Christian anti-Semitism has an incredibly long history, I'm, I'm deeply ashamed to say. Um, one of the strengths of Christianity is that, um, you know, from the Bible, from the documentation of the founding of the church in the New Testament, uh, there has been a warts and all self-reflection and honesty uh, about the strengths and weaknesses, mistakes, as well as uh, triumphs of the various Christians, uh, the apostles, uh, martyrs in church history. Uh, but the, the church doesn't hide away, you know, Christianity does, doesn't hide away from the fact that uh, one of Jesus's most beloved disciples um, denied him three times at the hour of his, of his persecution and crucifixion. Uh, it doesn't hide the fact that the apostles actually had debates amongst themselves about what was right and uh, public debates about what was right and wrong um, doctrine. Um, and uh, the the lessons we can take from that are super important. Uh, now, one of the, uh, just to give you a very brief understanding of where it comes from, I don't think it was maliciously intended, but it had uh, very toxic consequences. Essentially, Jesus promised he would come a second time. And the end time prophecies in the Bible are very, very explicitly requiring a nation of Jews and a state of Israel in order to be fulfilled. Uh, and after the Roman diaspora, where uh, Rome basically conquered Israel, destroyed the temple in AD 70 and, and cast Jews throughout the land. They salted the earth and they changed the name of the region to uh, to insult Israel as well as erase their identity. They wanted to um, erase their memory. And so they renamed the uh, whole region after the Philistines. Uh, the Romanized version of that name is Palisette. Uh, and you may see where this is going. Uh, Palestine was never a nation. The land was always Israel's, uh, but I digress. Um, and and so uh, after essentially the state of Israel was demolished by colonial uh, Rome, um, the Jews dispersed throughout the world and there was no state of Israel. So two or three centuries later in church history, uh, the Christians are saying, well, Jesus promised he was coming again um, and all of these promises can't be fulfilled and yet he said he was coming quickly. And, and so we need to reinterpret the way these prophecies have been traditionally interpreted by and taught by the apostles and the disciples of the apostles and their disciples. Um, and we need to imagine that perhaps um, uh, God has no need for Israel or the Jews anymore. And instead, Christians have replaced Israel and the church has replaced Israel. Uh, now, there is some theological truth there, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but essentially um, the invitation which was for God's chosen people is now being extended to the whole world. Um, but that doesn't mean that God has forgotten his people or abandoned them or has no further use for Israel. Um, what it does mean is you can't reinterpret uh, the prophecies of Scripture um, through the context of headlines. And so in 1948, when the modern state of Israel was um, uh, created, uh, then all of a sudden it became clear how scripture prophecies might be fulfilled uh, in our lifetime or a time soon to come, um, which nobody had seen possible since perhaps the third century, third or fourth century. Um, 
as a result of that church history through all that time uh, where um, people believed that the Christians and, and the church had completely re- replaced Israel, uh, it actually um, resulted, perhaps not intentionally, in a great deal of uh, animosity towards Jews, even making them um you know, making them enemies. So my episode on on Friday night, just gone, uh, actually dealt with this in a great deal of of detail. So I won't go into any more detail right now. Uh, but yeah, I, I've seen it a lot. Um, it's not new, and um, and it is manifesting in in very ugly ways right now. Uh, the most benign of which is people saying, "Don't take sides." Um, trying to find some kind of noble middle ground between terrorists and moral state. Um, and and then there's actually other people which are just saying um, some some pretty horrible anti-Semitic slurs and tropes which have, I think, very little credibility or basis in reality. Well, I want to talk to you about that because while that is a fascinating and valid explanation as to what's happening, there are a lot of shall we call them casual Christians who aren't really up to scratch with their scripture. And these Christians in the West have ended up parroting some of the mindless slogans of radical Islam and the aggressive secular left. Now, are these these Christians and conservatives, you know, these are the people who go to church maybe once or twice a year or for a wedding, but still consider themselves to be Christians. Are they genuine anti-Semites that have come to this position of Jew hatred through a different path to the left? Or are they accidentally associating themselves with this horror because, I don't know, they've somehow been successfully misled through the charitable desire to help the Palestinian children, for instance? Well, I think you're always going to find a, a spectrum of of degrees of of hatred. Um, it could be casual and uh, contextual, like it like it's rubbed off on them without them actually thinking about it and arriving at a at a pathological hatred. And and then you're going to find uh, those which are quite deep seated Jew haters. Um, one of the most disappointing ones I've seen. Uh, was a call for repentance from Palestinian Christians. Uh, And there was this letter signed by a number of Christian organisations calling for uh, repentance um, for Christian support of Israel. Uh, And when I read through that letter, it was was 99% Hamas propaganda talking points. It had very little basis in fact, very little basis in history, very little basis in uh, good Christian doctrine. And and I don't want to uh, cast aspersions on the sincerity or authenticity of their Christian faith, Um, but it is fair to say, uh, I think just based on on comparison side by side, that these people um, had some kind of racial prejudice uh, and and filtered to their eyes. Uh, We see, of course, that there's a a lot of... um, I don't want to use labels which which are, are overused in Australia, but there are a lot of people. Let's call them ethno uh, nationalists, who who have a a strong uh, dislike for Jews and believe all kinds of of tropes, and they're frequently um, associated with right wing um, uh, politics in Australia, and they're experiencing a lot of boldness right now. Um, I. I shared, uh, just as one example, uh, because a lot of people don't believe this. They don't say it's real or or going on. And um, I've been very vocal on my social channels in support for Israel and condemnation of uh, the Hamas Nazis. 
Um, and that has invited some of these anti-Semites out of the woodwork, as, as well as people who are a little bit more casual uh, about their wrong ideas. Um, but I, I shared a photo and researched data about uh, something you alluded to in, in your introduction to this topic, and that was the 1941 meeting of the Grand Mufti, the Muslim leader of Jerusalem, uh, in Germany with Hitler. Uh, and and I researched this very well and collaborated it, and this meeting did took place. I shared a photo of the meeting and the talking points uh, revealing the, uh, the affinity of this Muslim leader with um, Hitler's agenda. Um, and, and that was essentially the destruction and uh, genocide of Jews and the erasure and uh, cancellation of the nation of Israel. Now, nation Israel wasn't a nation at that time. It was referred to as their national homeland, uh, not, not an extant state. Um, and this uh, ethno-nationalist right-wing, presumably Christian guy, uh, simply jumped on and said rubbish. Uh, and and I'm like, well, you're not interested in the facts at all because if you if you weren't just dismissing what I said out of latent anti-Semitism or or patent anti-Semitism, uh, you would have actually um, done a little bit of fact checking and said it's 100% verifiable and true. Um, but instead, you've you've just given me this this uh, nonsense, basically trolling response, which. I think uh, is is pretty emblematic of the average anti-Semite. They're very pedestrian, very low information in the way they approach this topic and arrive at really nasty uh, conclusions um, about Jews as a group. Now, I will grant uh, there are Jews and Jewish influences and, and leaders and successful uh, people who have done really wicked and continue to do really wicked and, and horrible things, especially in the area of cultural influence. Um, but it would be silly to say that that is true of the whole group or to say that any other ethnic group um, is, is free of such variations. Uh, you know, the English, the Australians, the Americans, we all have uh, people in our culture and in our history who we really regret their, the actions and values of, and those people should be condemned. But that does not license us to make broad generalizations about an entire category or uh, identity group. Um, so, yeah, I mean, do you want to jump in yeah, here? Yeah, I'm I was going to say, look, I think, um, <laughs> I think it's been made pretty clear in the last couple of weeks that the danger to the Jewish people is not this handful of cosplaying teenage pretend neo-Nazis that wander around Victoria harassing women's rallies. They are not a threat to the Correct. Jewish people. They weren't even at these massive rallies. Absolutely right. The anti-Semitism and the really dangerous new Nazi movement is coming from the far left, uh, the radical version of Islam, as in the pro-Hamas, the pro-ISIS, the Hezbollah supporters, which we're seeing on our streets. The people who stand on the steps of parliament, not parliament, House or Opera House and shout gas the Jews, mm. they're the problems. That's where the anti-Semitism is coming from. And I think it's amazing to see the reaction from the press who had a complete panic attack over the women's rally and what they did to poor Moira Deeming versus their right. indifference to what we've seen happening in the yeah. last few weeks. Now, 
Coming back to those who sympathise with the Hamas supporters, or shall we call pro-Palestinian uh, protesters, there is an argument I see everywhere that we don't have to choose between Hamas ideology and Israel when it comes to Gaza. Now, secular voices can make this argument that there is, there's no higher power compelling them. I don't agree with it, but logically that is feasible. But Christians believe in good and evil. Do Christians have a responsibility in these events where the Jewish people, not only in Israel, but on the streets of Australia, are being harassed and attacked and intimidated by extremists using Palestine as a cover for their genocidal thoughts? Do Christians have a responsibility to say, this is right and this is wrong? Well, absolutely. Um, Christians uh, should, uh, above all, be the authoritative voices in what is right and wrong, what is true and, and what is wrong, what is immoral, what is moral, uh, what is good and, and what is evil, what is light and what is dark. If Christians don't know, heaven help the rest of us. Uh, but um, the, the fact is that it's certainly not exclusive to Christians. I mean, how how, how stupid do you have to be to to equivocate between um, the self-defence of a state uh, to determinedly destroy an enemy uh, versus those who invade that state and and perform horrific acts uh, against babies, unborn babies, uh, women, children, uh, teens, and young adults at a at a party in the desert. Uh, I mean, they and and then the the fact remains um, that that the generalisation of, of the evil uh, down to Hamas, not Palestinians, uh, belies the fact that um, uh, hundreds, over 600 civilians poured through the fence from Gaza into Israel with whatever they could find in their garden shed, axes and everything, to participate in the butchery while back in Gaza as the rockets flared overhead and Israeli blood was being spilled all over the ground in Israel, uh, the Palestinians and Gazans there were dancing in the streets and handing out lollies to celebrate, just as they did when the Twin Towers fell in 2001. To say this is an innocent population, uh, again, you, you spoke about and referred to the fact that the, the residents of Gaza are being indoctrinated in Jew hatred and sociopathic behaviour from their children's entertainment age. The minute they're old enough to talk and walk, they are being indoctrinated in fearing the Jews, hating the Jews and killing the Jews. Some of this content is on my social media channels. Uh, and so for people to equivocate between a nation defending itself and seeking a permanent peace, safety and security for its citizens... Uh, to equivocate that with Nazism and genocidal horrors um, is is the the height of ignorance, stupidity, and wickedness. Yes, well, I, and I don't want to, for a moment, try and say that the Christians and conservatives who were supporting the Hamas ideas as a proxy for you know uh, for that they are not the same. They are not posing an immediate physical threat to life as some as the other supporters do. But what I am trying to get at the point is that these people, if conservatives and Christians apologise for Hamas rhetoric, if they normalise things like from the river mm. to the sea and this kind of thing, they are effectively making it more difficult for politicians to crack down this yep. behaviour because the politicians are afraid of losing their political seats. I mean, this is a dangerous way. The Christians in this case are wrapping the genocidal ideology in a fluffy sheep's wool and giving it a Western face, whereas if they didn't, it would be a lot 
lot harder for the public to sympathise with Hamas, let's put it that way. Now, look, yeah, we... look to, to apologise for uh, Nazi behaviour is to be a Nazi apologist. Um, and what's the difference morally between a Nazi and a Nazi apologist? And I'm not talking the flippant overuse and abuse of that term as is common on the left towards anybody right of Stalin. I, I'm talking about literal genocidal intent and design against the Jewish people and the Israeli nation. I mean, to apologise for them and equivocate on the morality of self-defence versus uh, genocidal invasion is absolutely repugnant and and callously uh, unconscionable. Yes, well, I want to talk about the streets of Australia. Is it acceptable to have these pro-Hamas rallies on our streets? And can the police stop this? Because after what we saw during COVID, which went on for many years, I'm not so sure I buy the police saying, oh, well, we don't want to arrest anybody because it might be dangerous. I mean, if you remember correctly, we had police in Victoria shooting at freedom protesters. They brought out anti-terror mm. tanks. They were armed to the teeth and they didn't seem to have any, pro uh, any problem at all stopping protesters then. I mean, you can also go and look at the Met Police over in the UK. I don't know if you saw, but basically there was some film of uh, this protester there and he was waving what amounts to an ISIS flag and calling for jihad and holy war in Israel. And the Met Police put out a whole thing saying, oh, well, jihad can be interpreted differently and it doesn't necessarily mean this, but we understand that it might be upsetting. And they were absolutely rolled, even by my Twitter notes had a go at them. I mean, yeah. surely the police yeah. have a responsibility to make <laughs> sure that there is not genocidal threats happening on the streets of a civilised country. Look, uh, Hamas is a terrorist organisation. Their charter, their constitution, their history, the fabric, their DNA is 100% all about eliminating every Jew and every last square inch of the nation state of Israel. That is Hamas's uh, reason for existence. And anybody who waves the Palestinian flag is supporting the Palestinian government, which is elected in the only election they've had since 2006, uh, the terrorist organisation Hamas. Um, you cannot uh, equate any kind of support for Palestine uh, with anything other than support for the Hamas Nazi regime. And for people to, you know, freedom of speech is okay to a limit, uh, but the minute it is seeking to destroy other people's basic human rights, uh, that is where the end of any right happens. You don't get the right to swing your arms uh, once it coincides with somebody's nose. You don't get the right to swing your words once it coincides with somebody else's re uh, right to exist. Uh, and this genocidal absolute hatred uh, is revealing the hypocrisy of all those people who want to... They would be the same people who would call everybody else Nazis, who would um, demand all kinds of laws uh, against discrimination and who would like to ban hate speech. Well, I'm not in favour of banning hate speech, but by the time you're associating with an, a, a registered international terrorist organisation that seeks to end the existence of an entire race and an entire nation, uh, then I, I think it's well and truly obvious that the public peace is not served uh, by permitting these people on the streets. Now, having said that, the right place for them to express their toxic ideas, because I don't want to see their ideas banned, I want them to see them exposed, 
the right place to do it is anywhere that doesn't inhibit uh, the the public um, movement and and good and peace. Um, so perhaps a large hall where they can pay for venue hire and sell tickets to cover costs would would be the right way to do it. So in uh, you know the the um, I have to say, Dave, I haven't seen eighteen C or the Human Rights Commission uh, raise exactly their hand. Right. I mean, these are people it, it, who it's who a spend one-sided weapon. The- they spent all the peace years pursuing absolute nonsense. And when there's a genuine reason for mm. them to exist, like an actual role for them to play to keep people safe, they have just vanished off the face of the universe. It shows that they were really just a political tool being used to harass conservatives and they're not interested in keeping the peace. Otherwise, there'd be a few ministers yep. dragged in front of them and a few journalists that'd be standing in front of the Human Rights Commission right now. But what I actually want to talk to you about, because it's our last question here today, and no one else is talking about it, A lot of legacy conservative commentators and politicians are unaware of anti-Semitism within their own movement. And I remember when a significant percentage of the conservative freedom movement, egged on by prominent political figures, I might add, turned around and started supporting Putin because he agreed with them on trans issues. Now, yes, by their logic, suddenly a KGB torturer who murders his political opposition and members of the press is a friend of freedom of speech because, you know, that's how their logic works. Now, this kind... This kind of thinking has re-emerged where hugely influential people in the freedom movement, and I'm talking accounts with over a million followers on Twitter that have a far greater reach than any prime minister or president, they have started to sell the lie that the Jewish people are behind a globalist plot, that mass migration is their fault, that digital ID is their fault, that vaccines are their fault, and therefore Israel deserves to have Islamic terrorists kill them. That's the line. Now, they are using causes close to the heart of genuine popular freedom movements to sell this dangerous lie. These influences have the same level of power as Martin Luther King preaching on a street corner, and yet they are ignored as they radicalise thousands. Dave, because no one is combating this nonsense, it's growing in popularity. Do traditional conservative media voices and politicians need to start paying closer attention to social media and what's happening on there? Absolutely. Uh, we look, and the, this is what I do in my little corner of the internet: is, is basically try and talk to my tribe, my people, and say, "Okay, we share so many values, etc." But you're a little bit low information in some areas. Let me help. Um, trusting that they're actually interested in truth uh, and not uh, preferring some kind of insulated echo chamber. Um, and you know what? There, there is a, a lot of support. I, everything I've said uh, today may give a negative indication that there's uh, a, a serious problem with anti-Semitism in Christianity and conservatism. I, I have to say my pro-Israel posts are some of the most popular ones that I do Um but it has nevertheless uh, revealed and drawn out uh, the worms from the woodwork, uh, showing that um, there there is a, a deep problem here. Um, uh, in a month uh, or less, um, on the 26th of November, I'll be hosting a conference um, which will be aired uh, maybe live and certainly later on ADH-TV um, called 
Israel and anti-Semitism. And my target audience will be uh, those people who at the very least are in the middle and maybe even already right thinking, but need to be armed with the, uh, the, the processing of the bad information that's coming out there. So we can talk about the lies about Palestinian uh, nationhood, the, the lies uh, about replacement theology. Um, and we can dispel the confusion and reinforce right thinking for people. Hopefully, we can also change a few minds with um, some some clear articulation of facts, evidence, data, and logic, as well as scripture for those who are interested. Uh, but conservative commentators across the board, you're 100% right, need to be aware of, of what uh, the people who are already agreeing with this um, are inclined to be saying or believing uh, which is wrong. Uh, we need to be calling out our followers who regurgitate rubbish. Um, I've been debating people who are offering the bald-faced, baseless lie that uh, Israel coordinated uh, the attack and invited it and, and stood down deliberately and created Hamas. I mean, these, these things are just ludicrous and uh, deserve the same kind of uh, sober consideration as flat earth theory. Sorry for everybody who subscribes to either of those. Um, but um, it's absolutely our duty to be ventilating this issue uh, in the spirit of free speech to help people um, find where the good information is and, and present the good information that we might get from sources which can't be shared and to and to, to help people process this, this properly. Now, if people have a problem with you or me doing this, uh, and, and think we've somehow been bought or brainwashed, the question is, well, why were you following us in the first place if you have so little regard for our, our calibre of intellectual independence and processing? Um, stop following if you think it's that easy to change my mind with uh, whatever you think has happened. And I can assure you it's only uh, my sober, independent analysis of the issues which leads me to my opinion. For whatever that's worth, uh, anybody who, who might doubt it. Look, you are so right. And I feel as if we are being given a second chance at history. We're still in the opening bars of this discussion. Mm. We don't have to repeat the mistakes of last century. We can pull this back. We can protect the Jewish people. We can stop Western civilization from collapsing into this horrible separatist and violent civil movement. We can make a difference and it's up to every single voice out there who has a platform or who's even just a follower to make sure that these ideas are combated before they become an issue. And uh, maybe even the left will see the light before it gets too late, Dave. But look, thank you so much for joining us here today. I urge everyone to go and watch your show and to follow your articles. You're a wonderful writer and an excellent commentator. Thanks for joining us here today on Marshall Live. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Bye-bye. And that's all we have time for here today. Catch you next week.